Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Bazerman. Professor Bazerman teaches at the Harvard Business School with a focus in decision-making, negotiation, behavioral insights, and ethics. In Better Not Perfect, he explores how we can all increase the good we put out into the world with an emphasis on being better over being perfect. The book lays out a framework for how we can make decisions that create more value, then demonstrates how readers can apply this mindset to their everyday lives. We spoke with Max about the book, How We Can Create More Good, and some of the obstacles that get in the way of that. So joining us in our podcast right now, we have Max Bazerman. He is the author of Better Not Perfect. And Max, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast. I'm delighted to be with you. Great, great. Uh, so to start us off, can you tell us what compelled you to write this book? Um, so this book has been um, part of my own journey for many years now, and I'm intrigued by the question of how I can do more good in the world. Um, and yet um, I'm a human being who has some selfish motives and some desire to enjoy life, so I'm not ready to spend every li- living moment thinking about how do I maximize overall goodness in the world. But I would certainly uh, like to do far better than I did last year. And next year, I think I can do far better than I did this year. So the book is my journey into the question of how can we think about creating more value um, for all sentient beings on the planet? And how can we play a role in encouraging other people to do likewise? And so... How does your business background give you a unique insight into this problem? So as, as um, you may or may not know, I'm a negotiations professor. So I've taught tens of thousands of people how to negotiate. And we commonly um, think uh, in, in negotiations about how to create value, how to create deals that make both parties better off. And if you simply change the other party to everybody else in the world and you think about how do I simply create more value across everybody, then the logic from negotiations moves to the world of ethics or behavioral ethics, I think, quite nicely. So the question I'm really um, um, driving at is rather than how to make more rational decisions in the context of negotiating with another party or, or with a few other parties, how to create more value across um, all of us. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, and so in the book, you talk about uh, and you lay out a graph, this concept of expanding the pie. Could you talk a little bit about that concept? Sure. So um, when you go to dinner with your significant other and you have a disagreement about which of two restaurants to go to and you compromise on a third restaurant and then over dinner, you talk to your significant other about which movie to see afterwards and again you have different opinions and you compromise you end up with a compromise on both dinner and movie um often uh, you'll later find out that your significant other cared more about the movie choice and you cared more about the dinner choice and you would have been both better off by trading off 
um, and, and allowed each party to have their first choice. It's creating value by making wise trades, by making wise choices. And in ethics, I think we can do that as well. We can make decisions about how to allocate our limited time on Earth to create the most value possible. We can think about our charitable dollars um, in ways that are consistent with the writings of um, Peter Singer or Will McCaskill, who think about where will your charitable dollar create the most good for other parties, rather than simply where do you feel like giving it, giving your dollar at, at any particular moment in time. So by deliberating, by reflecting more, in negotiations we create value between two parties. Um, in terms of ethics, we can create more value overall by being more deliberative and more reflective. Mm -hmm. Um, so another thing you talk about in the book, uh, and this is a concept that's been used by many people who study um, these kinds of things, is system one versus system two thinking. Could you elaborate a little bit on what that is and how it relates to the decisions we make? Sure. So the system one, system two distinction originally created by Stanovich and West, but perhaps made famous um, in the work of um, Danny Kahneman. Um, highlights that human beings often make lots of intuitive decisions or use our system one thinking, which is quick um, and allows us to go through life without um, obsessing about each possible decision. But sometimes we move to system two thinking, um, which is our more deliberative systems where we um, consider costs and benefits, where we might um, think more in, in a more logical way. We might, in fact, talk to our friends to get the wisdom of other parties to help us out. And in the behavioral economics literature, um, there's lots of evidence that for important decisions, our system two processes are less biased and on average lead to far better decisions than our system one processes. This is um, in disagreement with the arguments made in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, but I think that the vast amount of empirical evidence is strongly in favor of system two over system one in terms of the quality of decisions that are made. Um, what we find is that not only does system two lead you to better decisions in system one, but it also leads you to more ethical decisions. Um, so uh, an example I often use is that a lot of us make charitable decisions throughout the year. And mm -hmm. we make decisions when a friend or a colleague asks us to donate to a particular cause. And we basically have an emotive reaction on whether or not we're going to make that donation. And many of us also donate at the end of the year where we go through a more comparative process um, about which charity is going to do the most good. And I would argue that when we're in a comparative mindset, we, we, we're deliberating more um, and we're likely to pick charities that are going to create more value um, for our charitable dollar. So um, what we want to do, I, I believe, for important decisions is to get out of system one into system two, to be more deliberative, to be more reflective, to talk to other people, in some cases to use, use algorithms, not only to make more rational decisions, but to make more ethical decisions as well. Where ethics, again, is being defined the way Bentham and Mill and Singer define ethics from what will create the most value in the world. Mm -hmm. Another thing in the book you talk about in terms of our system one versus system two thinking is the question of race. Um, and you talk about how this goes back to 
when we were in hunter-gatherer societies, how there's sort of this in-group favoritism that at the time allowed us to survive and thrive. Um, and you talk about how that's, uh, oftentimes that's a major factor in terms of how we interact with people of different races from us. Um, so that it's often not, um, it's not hostility as opposed to just an in-group favoritism. Is that is that concept helpful to talk about in terms of racial inequality? Um, I, I think it is. So, uh, so there's lots of evidence that there are lots of people who discriminate because they favor other people who are like themselves. And they're focused on doing good for people they know rather than harming the outgroup. But the problem is if the mortgage money is limited or the number of slots in the university is limited, when we favor the in-group, we end up harming the outgroup in a very similar way as if we had been hostile to the outgroup to begin with. And there's lots of evolutionary um, logic on why we might favor the in-group. Yet the same people who might have a biological or psychological tendency to favor the in-group can be people who believe in equality. They just don't happen to practice sort of equality in their decision making. And I think that if we can get people to reflect more and to think more systematically, they in fact will not only endorse equality, they will actually make more equal decisions. So when Iris Bonnet and Alexandra Van Geen and myself looked at the decision on who to hire, um, what we find is that when people evaluate one employee at a time, there's a propensity to discriminate against females for math relevant positions. But when um, when the employer considers two or more employees comparatively at the same time, um, our, um, our intuitive bias against females disappears because when we think systematically about which of these employees is um, more likely to be effective, then we use job relevant criteria. We think more systematically, systematically and more ethically, we think more logically. So again, we see that the power of deliberation, the more we deliberate, the more we think about um, comparisons, the more, the better the quality of our decision and also the more ethical our decisions will be. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Uh, sorry if you got a little dog barking in there. Um, no the problem. I'm a big, big, big dog fan. <laughs> uh, she's very protective. Um, so you mentioned in the book sociobiology, um, which is sort of this tendency that we have, um, that how our evolution is focused on the short-term goal of survival, of the continuation of our species. Um, and often this tends to go against these sort of ethical practices in the book, as we were just discussing in terms of race. Um, so in a weird way, does that does that make ethical behavior unnatural almost? Well, I, I think that there's lots of behaviors that evolved for some reason that made sense in the hunter-gatherer society um, uh, many, many, many years ago. Um, and just because a certain behavior was adaptive um, 10,000 years ago does not mean that we should kind of accept it to be part of our behavior um, today. So um, Peter Singer uses the um, argument of enlarging your circle. So rather than sort of protect your um, family or your small clan, how do we get people to value 
a broader and broader circle of people more equally. So he he argues, and and, I, and I'm convinced by his arguments that in fact that there may have been survival benefits of of um, favoring your family or your clan. Um, but I think in contemporary society, when we have sort of when we provide amazing benefits to our own in-group, um, we end up harming other parties in ways that we wouldn't come close to be, to be willing to endorse. Um, we, we show favoritism for our group over other groups in ways that are not ethically justifiable. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to ask you a sort of devil's advocate question here. Um, and you kind of touch on, in the end of the book, um, the definition of altruism and you know, sort of the feeling good about doing good. And if you are doing it because you want to feel good, it isn't necessarily being ethical. Um, and also in the book, you talk a lot about, you know, how, the ways to maximize your goodness and sort of think about it very methodically. Um, so is there something sort of cold and impersonal about reducing acts of kindness to this very um, methodological process? Or is it, um, is that good because this, um, the fact that we need to feel like we're doing good, is that often a hindrance to us actually doing good? So so I, I think that there's definitely something to what you're saying, that, that there are people um, who aren't going to donate where their dollars are going to have the greatest impact because it's not a cause that they can um, be close to, they can't meet um, the, be the beneficiaries of their charitable contribution, etc. And without that warmth, they're not willing to donate. Um, mm -hmm. So my reaction is, if you need to pick between a less effective charitable target or not donating at all, by all means, the less effective target um, makes an awful lot of sense. On the other hand, I think that um, I've met lots of passionate, effective altruists um, who, are, who have a passion for reducing as much suffering as they possibly can, both with their time and with their charitable dollar. So, so, I, so I don't quite want to yield to your devil's advocate position in implying that um, thinking about how to do the most good isn't an emotional experience. I think that that can be a very effective emotional experience and one that I mm -hmm. hope that I'm developing within myself. Good, Gab. So one one last question I want to ask about the book. Um, so this better not perfect mentality that goes into it um, is good in terms of, you know, you can try to be a little better every year. Um, but does it risk complacency or sort of this good enough attitude, do you think? Oh, I don't want you to be complacent. If you can be a lot better, that's that's mm -hmm. better than being a lot better. So, um, w w w and so, so I don't want you to minimize your goals at all. And I, I don't think that the book in any way encourages you to, to only be slightly better. The reason I use the word better, um, it says better, not perfect, rather than uh, just a little bit better. It says better, not perfect, because you know, utilitarian philosophy has existed for a long time now. Um, and there are very, a lot of very smart people. I mentioned Bentham, uh, um, Bentham Mill um, Singer. At it. My colleague Josh Green certainly belongs um, in that group. Um, and they've uh, done a fantastic job of identifying what the optimal behavior would be, what the perfect state looks like. Um, and what I want to do is make sure that we don't miss the opportunity to create an enormous amount of good because people reject the perfect state of judging every action against 
the, the definition of doing the most good possible. And if people are going to potentially reject the idea of being perfect, then I still want to encourage them to be much, much better. Mm -hmm. That's great. Absolutely. Um, okay, so one final question for you, and this is a question that we ask all of our guests on the podcast, since we are primarily aiming for teachers here. Who was your favorite teacher? Wow. Um, <laughs> so I've had so many amazing teachers, um, but, um, but when I think about who I learn the most from, I tend to not, so I'm going to define a teacher as someone who I learned a bunch from, I tend to not think about people who were in the front of the classroom when I was sitting in the class. Um, I tend to think of a lot of my uh, co-authors, colleagues, and particularly advisees. So um, you, you've already interviewed Dolly Shug um, on your podcast, who's a HarperCollins author of a terrific book. Um, and she was my, she was my advisee, and, uh, and she is my co-author and friend. Um, and I think that Dolly has been an amazing teacher for me. In fact, the idea of better is in her book as well. Um, so I think that I'm motivated on lots of um, my most important writing from the insights of other people around me. And Dolly would be a great example of that. That's great. Uh, I think this might be the first time we've had someone who has been on the podcast as the answer to the question. So thank you for that. Excellent. She's a good person to be a first. Oh, she yeah, she's fantastic. And I was I was so happy to see her mentioned in your book multiple times. Absolutely. Uh, well, Max, thank you for joining us today. This has been a great conversation. It was lovely to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you for including me, Michael. Thank you. You enjoy the rest of your day. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.